Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse Bible study of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are continuing working our way through Matthew's gospel, and technically we are in chapter 19, but don't turn there. Let's start in Matthew chapter 5, because now we're talking about the subject of divorce. And we touched on it last week. I kind of introduced it, but I promised you last week that we would dig in deeper, because far too often people seem to use the Bible as like a blunt force instrument. And they attack people with it and beat people over the head with it. And Jesus' comments on divorce have a context. And there are other things said in the Bible about divorce. And so we have to look at the big picture and not just walk around wagging our finger or condemning people or using Jesus' words against people. Let me say right up front that anybody who has experienced or gone through divorce knows that it is a horrific process. It's terrible. It's painful. It's emotionally devastating. And then far too often, when people are at their weakest point as they're going through divorce, the church pounces. And far too often they use Jesus' words in Matthew 18 as their springboard in order to go on the attack. But as I said, Jesus' words have a context. In Matthew 18, remember that Jesus did not just launch into the topic. The Pharisees actually approached him. And Matthew tells us specifically that they asked this question because they were testing him. And they did this very, very frequently. They tried to catch him. They tried to get him to say something opposite Moses or tried to get him to undermine God's law or something so that they could point at him and say, well, then he can't be the Messiah because clearly the word already says, God already says, Moses already says, and now we've tied him up in his own words. So they were testing him. They were trying him. But throughout Matthew's gospel, and I hope you've recognized it by now, it is thematic that Jesus is preparing his listeners, his followers, his disciples, for the advent of the new covenant. And one of the ways that he does that is back here in chapter 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, where he repeatedly says, you have heard it said. And then he quotes Moses. He quotes the law. And then he says, but I say... And oftentimes, the things that he says are different than what the law said. Sometimes it looks like on the surface that he's just sort of creating an expansion on the law. But he's always saying things that the law doesn't say. And what he is doing across the board is raising the standards so high that he's leveling the playing field so that everybody's guilty. Here's what I'm talking about. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, everybody would agree. Yeah, that's definitely part of the law. Yeah, don't commit adultery. It's even one of the big ten. It's one of the ten commandments. Don't commit adultery. 
Now, any Jew who's listening to him at that moment who has not committed adultery is thinking, well, I'm good. I'm covered there. I haven't done that. Jesus says, but I say to you, if you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you're guilty like an adulterer. Okay, that just made every man in the room guilty. And that's why he did it. He did it on purpose to make sure that everybody knew that there was no way they could stand justified before God based on simply their behavior or their performance. Everybody's behavior or performance was going to fall short of the perfect standard of God's holiness and righteousness. Now, sometimes he said things that were the direct opposite of what the law said. The example that I like to use is, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yes, that's exactly right. That is what the law says. That is what Moses says. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's fair. That's justice. Jesus said, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. What? Wait a minute. Wait, 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 Jesus. You're not extrapolating on the law now. You're not explaining the law now. You're saying the opposite of the law now. Why? Because he was establishing his rules. He is the new lawgiver. He is establishing the higher, better covenant. And he is demonstrating that what he says is superior to Moses. And as I've said, this is thematic all the way through the book of Matthew, whether you're talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah are on either side of Jesus, and Peter tries to equate the three, and then a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. Peter looks up, the other two are gone. The law and the prophets, gone, Jesus standing there. So again, over and over again, Matthew is demonstrating that Jesus is superior to everything that came before him. And he keeps quoting scripture and quoting the Old Testament in order to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those prophecies of a Messiah to come, the one, the only one through whom men can be saved. And that is exactly what he does in Matthew 18 when they ask him, Is it okay to divorce your wife for any cause? And he cites Genesis, as we're going to see in a few moments. He reaches all the way back to the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, I find really, really fascinating because Jesus, who would know, validates the Genesis account. Regardless of what science may say today, or regardless of what carbon dating may tell us about the millions and millions of years that it took for men to evolve to the point where we stood up on our hind legs, Jesus validates the Genesis account and says God created them, man and woman. And then he validates the one woman, one man marriage. We talked about that last week. But then they say, then why did Moses allow that you could just give a woman a certificate of divorce and put her out? And we looked at it last week. That's true. Moses did allow that for any cause, if you were upset with the woman, you could give her a bill of divorcement and put her out. Now, if she was guilty of adultery, that was a completely different thing. Because if she's guilty of adultery, you stone her, according to the law, 
adultery was a death sentence offense. And so if you were putting her out of your house, but not for the cause of adultery, the bill of divorcement was almost like a way of clearing her name, saying she is not an adulteress, but I'm not married to her anymore. I've put her out of the house. And you could do that for just about any cause. And so Jesus responds to that and says, that's right. Moses did allow that, but he allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts. And as we discussed a little bit last week, I think that was gracious of God. I think he was saying, knowing how cruel men can be, knowing how mean people can be when they're in a marriage and they're just angry at their spouse and they start abusing the spouse. Jesus said, well, because your hearts are so hard, God allowed that. But he's very clear to say that's not the way God intended it. And then says, they become one flesh, man and woman, when they are married. And what God has joined together, let no man separate or turn asunder. Then he lays down the basic rules about divorce, where Jesus says, except for the cause of adultery, if you divorce your wife and you marry somebody else, not only are you committing adultery, but you're causing her to commit adultery if she gets married again. So let's talk about what he was saying, what the context was, and why he was saying it. Because what he was saying is perfectly in line with what he had already said on the Sermon on the Mount while he was saying, you've heard it said, but I say. And he did the same thing he does every single time, which is raise the bar so high that everybody's guilty. And that's his point. When he responds to the Pharisees, And they're saying, well, we ought to be able to just divorce our wives for any cause. And if we do, then we ought to be free to marry again. He accuses them of being adulterers. Why? Because he's raising that bar and saying everybody's guilty. So now look at the parallel between what he says in Matthew 5, and then we'll look at what he says in Matthew 18, and you'll see that he's saying the same thing the same way. Because he's making a point, which is, yes, Moses said, but I say. And that's the point. So in Matthew 5, let's start at verse 31. And it was said... This is back in that you have heard it said. This is what Moses allowed. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, says the NASB, it means for sexual impurity, for any kind of adultery, Except for that cause. Now, why would he make that exception? Because if she is already guilty of adultery, the marriage bond is already broken. And so he's not guilty of breaking the marriage bond if he gives her a certificate of divorce because she's adulterous. She has already broken that bond. So here's Jesus' rule. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity, sexual impurity, makes her commit adultery. Okay, here's the image. Uh, A man who gets up one day, the wife has made breakfast, she burnt the breakfast, 
he's not happy. You've burnt the breakfast too often now. I'm done with you. I'm going to give you a certificate of divorce, and I'm going to put you out. I'm not putting you out. Who's amening what over here? What has just occurred on that side of the room? Wow. Was he the one that amened over there? Yes. So he's going to put her out. He's going to divorce her. Now, in that patriarchal society, if he puts her out of the house, the automatic assumption by all the onlookers, friends, and neighbors is going to be, well, he put her out because she's probably an adulteress or he found some kind of impurity, uncleanness in her. But he's putting her out because of burnt breakfast. And so by giving her a certificate of divorce, he is saying she is not guilty of adultery. Jesus says, when you do that, she then is going to go get married. Again, patriarchal society. The woman is going to need a husband in order to be secure in the society. And so if she goes and marries somebody else, Jesus says, you, the one who put her out, make her an adulteress. You cause her to go commit adultery. So what does that make you? Guilty. That's the whole point. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said, but I say, was saying, Moses said this, you think you're doing that, and now I'm going to raise the bar so high that you're going to be guilty no matter what. Guilty, guilty, guilty. So, yes, if you were just doing things Moses' way, just giving her a certificate of divorce that was allowable under the law, it was allowable under Moses, and people who did it thought, well, my hands are clean. I did it the way the law says. Jesus says, no, you're guilty. You're guilty because you've caused her to become an adulterer. I say everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Why? Because of what Jesus is going to explain, that when the two have come together, they become one flesh. And God sees them in that one flesh paradigm. And therefore, whoever separates that, except for the cause of adultery, is guilty. And why is adultery always the one uh, exception to the rule? Well, because if adultery is part of it, the marriage bond is already broken. So you can't make somebody an adulterer who is already an adulterer. But the purpose is always this. Never forget this. The subject, the purpose is so much larger than divorce. What Jesus is doing here is saying, yes, Moses said that. But I say, because I'm superior to Moses. So I'm going to tell you things that are so far beyond Moses that it's going to make you recognize your inability to be righteous and holy before God. And that's why you need a savior. And I'm the savior. It's always ultimately about Christ making sure people recognize their need of him. And that's the big theological purpose. Now, by the way, Paul is going to pick up Jesus' teaching on divorce and use it in the book of Romans in order to create a theology of our freedom in Christ. We're going to look at that before the morning's over, too. So the subject is so much bigger than just divorce. 
Okay, with that introduction, turn to Matthew 19. See, not a terribly long introduction. See, I did all right. We're starting right at the top of chapter 19. It came about when Jesus had finished these words. He departed from Galilee, and he came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Okay, so that was the Moses rule. You could divorce your wife for any cause. Something about her doesn't please you, write her a certificate of divorce, out she goes. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's right back to the Genesis account. That takes you right back to the Garden of Eden. So I'm going to pause and really drive this point home. Some of you have heard this story before. If you have, talk to yourselves for a moment. I met a woman years ago who said to me that she was not Christian, and the reason that she didn't believe in Christianity was because she had given birth to a couple of children, and so she couldn't buy the virgin birth. And I said, really, that's where you start? That was the face I made, Leon. That was exactly it. Really, that, that's where you start? You have, you're struggling with the virgin birth thing, and for that reason, you've rejected Christianity altogether? That's, that's what does it for you? All the New Testament writers, and particularly Paul, start with the resurrection. And Paul says, if the resurrection is true, then the rest of it's true. If the resurrection is not true, he says, well, then we're of all men most miserable, and we're still in our sins. In other words, we don't have a savior, and we're going to stand before God, and we're going to be judged if he did not get up out of the grave. If Jesus got up out of the grave, then that settles it. He is who he said he was, and everything else he says is valid and true. So I have always used Jesus as the authority on the Old Testament. And when Jesus authorizes something, when he validates something in the Old Testament, that's as good an authority as you're ever going to find on that topic because he is the only one who came up out of the grave. For me, my Christianity was settled when I studied the resurrection. And in our systematic theology series, which is on YouTube and on our website, we took two weeks and just talked about the proof, the evidence that Jesus actually came up out of the grave. And you can go and look at that and look at all the historic evidence that led me to the conclusion that there's just no other way he came up out of the grave. Once I settled the resurrection question, I didn't have to go arguing about or having problems with, you know, did Daniel really have a dream and was there really a big thing? Did the sun pause in the sky? Did the, you know, all the stuff in the Old Testament that you go, did that happen? Did it not? I go with Jesus and Jesus constantly validates the Old Testament and he would know. In fact, there is this wonderful statement, whereas Jesus is telling his apostles, I believe it's in John's gospel, as he's telling them that he's going to leave, he's going to prepare a place for them, and then he's going to come back to get them. Where I am, you may also be in my father's house. He says, there are many 
dwelling places. The King James says many mansions, many dwelling places. So I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and get you. And then he says this wonderful statement, if it were not so, I would have told you. Because he's that honest. If, if, if what I was telling you was not true, I would tell you what the truth was. I wouldn't ever tell you anything that isn't exactly so. So here you have Jesus validating the Genesis account of the Garden of Eden. Now that's real helpful and real instructive in your worldview. Because if Jesus, the only one who came up out of the grave, the one who is demonstrably the son of God walking in shoe leather on the planet, if he says the Genesis account is true and science doesn't, who are you going to go with? Where's your worldview? Are you going to say, well, you know, carbon dating, which is a pretty sketchy science at this point anyway, but are you going to say, well, hey, dinosaur bones? Or are you going to say, well, Jesus said, I have to, I'm forced to go with, well, Jesus said, and he has more validity on the topic because he said things like, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, well, that means he predates Abraham. He even goes so far, John goes so far as to say that when God in Genesis said, let there be light from the very beginning, when God spoke everything into existence, John argues it was Jesus who spoke it. Oh, well, then he would know whether or not man and woman were created man and woman. And he would know whether or not God designed them on purpose to be compatible that way so that their sexual union would be a one flesh kind of union. He would know all that. And he had no problem saying it. And he wasn't afraid of what society would think or what science would think. He just stated it as a fact. This is how it works. Man, woman, that's how God made them compatible, one flesh, And if that's the way that God sees it, that's the way we need to see it. So they're testing him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he says, have you not read? What does that mean? He's talking about the scripture. He's saying the scripture is valid. Have you not read it in the scripture? Haven't you already looked in your Bible? Haven't you already read it? If you've read it, that's the word of God. And since you read it in the word of God, you should already know the answer. Jesus validates the scripture. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Notice the language. I mentioned it last week. I'm going to emphasize it again. He did not say, for this cause will a man leave a man and cling to his husband, or a woman leave and cling to her wife. Male, female, that's the way God designed it. There's no way around it. And that's why a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, man and wife. That's the way it works. And the two shall become one flesh. There is no way for a man and a man to compatibly become one flesh. 
or a woman and a woman. It just doesn't exist regardless of what the society may be trying to tell us now. Consequently, verse 6, he drives the point home, consequently they're no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So there's the answer to their question. Is it okay to divorce your wife for every cause? He says, well, let's look at it from God's perspective, shall we? From God's perspective, it was one man, one woman for life. God sees them as one flesh, and what God has put together, no man gets to separate. So they argue with him and say, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? You can read about that in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. We looked at it last week. And it does say that. He gave her a certificate of divorce and you put her out. So then why did Moses say that? And he said, because of the hardness of your hearts. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. So Jesus is going back to the original standard. The original standard is the Garden of Eden standard. And then he said, but God allowed this because you men are just so hard to live with. Can I get a witness? And that is actually gracious of God to allow that. But Jesus says, but that was never the original design. Here then is the hard verse. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what he said back in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the same paradigm. If a man divorces his wife for any other cause except for fornication, because if she has already committed adultery, then she has already broken the marriage bond, so he isn't causing her to become an adulterer if she already is. But under any other circumstance, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, there are some older manuscripts that have a couple variant readings there. Some of the early manuscripts read, makes her commit adultery. In other words, if a man divorces his wife, except for immorality, he makes her commit adultery. The NASB says, if he marries another woman, he commits adultery. And some early manuscripts say, he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's just agree it means adultery all around. Okay? Now, should we beat people over the head with that verse? Should we bludgeon already hurting people and say, well, now, especially if you've gotten married again, not only are you divorced and not for the cause of adultery, but now you're an adulteress, and he's an adulterer, and everybody's adulterer. Is that what Jesus is getting at? Was he saying this for the purpose of beating people down? What was he doing? Same thing he was doing in chapter 5. Making sure that these men who thought they were self-righteous in divorcing their wives understood that they were actually guilty before God. There's a context there. And he was answering their question about the way they were living their lives 
In fact, this was such a common practice that going into marriage, they knew that they had a fail-safe. If at any point they wanted out, I just give her a bill of divorcement. And when Jesus said, no more of that, no more bills of divorcement, one man, one woman for life, his own disciples say, that's too hard. Why would anybody get married then? Because they're so in that mindset that was the common social norm at the time that you could bail out of your marriage. So his disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, then it's better not to marry. Because they realize that Jesus is saying, the way you're doing it is wrong. And he was saying that on purpose. But again, I'm going to keep saying this over and over again. What was Jesus doing? He was making sure that the Pharisees knew they were guilty. Because they thought they didn't have any guilt. They were following the law of Moses. And he says, yes, Moses said that you could do it. But I say. And he raised the standard to the level where they all realized that every one of them was guilty. And the law can't help you. Once you're guilty before the law, you're guilty before the law. And all the law can do is judge you. So what do you need? Well, you need a savior. You need somebody to stand between you and God. If you men who had put away your wives for every cause, if you stand before God, God is going to judge you because you made her commit adultery and you committed adultery and everybody's committing adultery and you're all guilty. Now what? Well, you need a savior. You need an intercessor. You need an advocate with the father. And that's the point that Jesus was making. So I say, and we're going to look at a couple other verses to to back this up, but I say, number one, Jesus' adultery speech has a context. He was talking to people who were, in fact, divorcing their wives for any cause. And Jesus was not bludgeoning, hurting people. He was not saying, okay, all you people who have been divorced now... um, You're guilty and you're wrong and you're out of the church and you should feel bad and your conscience should be affected for the whole rest of your life. Because one thing we do know, one thing that the new covenant promises us is complete forgiveness and peace with God. So let's say, let's just make it a a general blanket statement. Let's say all divorce all the time always is sin. That's not what Jesus said. I'm, I'm raising the bar. Let's say all divorce all the time in every instance is always sin. What do you do about it? How do you fix it? What do you do? How are you going to fix that? You can't. You can't fix that any more than you can fix the fact that you're a liar and that you're already guilty as a liar. Any more than you can fix the fact that Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty as a murderer. Well, then how many murderers are in the room this morning? You're you're nodding too much, Joni. The whole point is guilty, 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 guilty. You're guilty people. You're guilty sinners, and you act like guilty sinners. And the way you treat each other and the way you divorce your wives and the way you live your life, even the way you eat your food, even the way you treat strangers, everything, everything about you is rebellion against God. You need a savior.
and adultery and divorce is just one of those many things that is part of the human condition because of our hard hearts. But is Jesus a perfect and a complete savior? Well, yes, he is. So I have good news and words of comfort for those of us who have gone through divorce. Is it wrong? Yeah, it's wrong. Does it happen? Way too often. Even in the church, it happens way too often. Is there forgiveness? Yes, absolutely. Is that forgiveness complete and utter? Yeah, it is. And in fact, we're going to look at Paul say that in just a few minutes. So let's finish this passage, then we'll go look at Paul. So the disciples said to him in verse 10, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, then it's better not to marry. But he said to them, and this is just interesting language, not all men can accept this statement. Most commentaries will tell you that he's referring to their statement, that it's better not to marry. He says not everybody can accept that. In fact, Paul is going to say that it's better to marry than to burn. Even though he says it's better to stay single like I am, it's still better to marry than to burn. And what he means is to burn with lust. You know, there are some people who just can't stay single. They just don't have the capability to remain single, and therefore, Jesus allows, Paul allows, that they ought to get married. So not everyone can accept this statement that it's better not to marry, but only those to whom it has been given. Some people are given the ability to live celibate lives, but not everybody. And that's what he talks about in verse 12, where he says... There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. The way that he's going to use the word eunuch here has to do with people who are not driven by the sexual urge. They don't have a sexual urge. The first two categories of people that he's talking about are birth defects. And then he talks about eunuchs who were made that way by men. In the Middle East during that time, if you were a king who had multiple wives, concubines, you would take young men and castrate them at an early age so that they could become guards in your harem and you didn't have to worry about them getting involved with your wives or your women because you had already fixed their ability to take care of them. And that also by changing them genetically, changed them hormonally, oftentimes they became very big people, Good for big guards, but you also didn't have to worry that they were getting involved. That's what Jesus is talking about. There are some eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. So the first two categories are there are people who were born eunuchs, who were incapable of having any kind of sex. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What he's talking about is people who have the ability to accept the statement, it's not better to marry, or it's better not to marry, whichever way you want to say that. Those people can accept that statement because they're not driven by sexuality or the sexual urge. Some of them because of a birth defect. Some of them because they were made that way by other men. But some of them because they've chosen the celibate life for the kingdom of God. And those people can accept the phrase, 
that it's better not to marry. But he said not everybody can accept that phrase. Some people marry because they need to marry. They're, they're the marrying kind. They're the, they're the kind of people who, nobody on the internet will get that. They're, they're just the type that need to get married. So there are also eunuchs who have made themselves such for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So he's saying this is not a universal rule. This is not across the board. I'm just telling you that there are some people for whom your statement is true. It's better not to marry, but it's perfectly okay to marry as well. So with that said, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. We have yet to go verse by verse through 1 and 2 Corinthians. We have covered most of the books of the New Testament in a verse by verse fashion. But we haven't gotten to 1 and 2 Corinthians yet. And I look forward to doing that. If Jesus tarries and I keep breathing, I'm even thinking that after we finish Matthew, it would be nice to transition to some Pauline theology then for a while and talk New Covenant. But the uh, Corinthian church was, let's see, how shall we describe this? They were a mess. And they had problems, Paul said, that were unlike even what the sinful Gentiles were involved in. Most of these two letters that he wrote to them were corrective letters. You're doing this wrong, here's what's right. You're doing it wrong, here's what's right. And he gets to the end of the second letter and says, and I'll deal with the rest when I get there. I mean, it's just, they were a problematic church. What I do appreciate about the Corinthian letters is that at no point did Paul say, well, that's it, then you're not a church. Instead, he just says, you're a mess, but but you're a church and you belong to Christ and that's why we're going to have to correct you and straighten you up. So frequently in his letters he will say, now concerning the things that you wrote to me about, because they wrote to him and said, well, what about this? We got these problems and what about this? And that's how chapter 7 begins. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. So clearly they had concerns along this topic and he is responding to them. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Notice again the husband-wife, wife-husband connection. Far too often the pro-gay marriage crowd will say, well, you know, Jesus never talked about it. Jesus never brought it up, and as I showed you last week and this morning, he did. But then Paul carries on the same thing. It doesn't matter where in the Bible you look. Whenever the subject of marriage comes up, it is always man and woman, man and woman. Always, cross the board, universally, doesn't change, isn't altered in any way. But because of immoralities, what he's saying there is knowing sort of the male sexual urge and in order to keep illicit sexual behavior down, it's better for a man to marry and have a wife and live in harmony with his wife. The two become one flesh. So because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, even though from Paul's perspective, he said, it's better for a man not to touch a woman. Now, I will tell you in advance, and we'll see it in a few moments, that Paul's perspective is very influenced by the fact that he believes that Christ is going to be right back. He is convinced 
that all the stuff that Christ talked about, the time of tribulation and all of that is right around the corner and Christ is going to return soon, which is why he can say things like whatever condition you're in in your life right now. If you're a free man, stay free. If you're a slave, stay a slave. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single because Christ is going to be right back. And so some of this stuff that he's saying, you have to realize, is coming from that perspective. Verse 3 says, let the husband fulfill his duty to the wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. It's important that that sexual union be maintained within a marriage, especially if part of the inspiration for the marriage is to keep down any illicit sexual urges then let the husband fulfill his duty to the wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a set period of time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your Lack of control. So he's very aware of the built-in, God-given sexual urge and says the best way to satisfy that sexual urge is for a man to be married to a woman and they satisfy each other. And there's nothing wrong with that. The marriage bed is not defiled. Perfect. That's the way the relationship is meant to be. He says, but if you start defrauding each other, if you start withholding from each other, That doesn't make the sexual urge go away. It just creates greater temptation. The Bible's rather earthy, isn't it? It gets right down here where we live. But I appreciate that it doesn't sugarcoat stuff like this. So stop depriving one another. Verse 6. But this I say by way of concession, not by command. In other words, Jesus didn't tell me this. I am using my best influence. From what I know of Christ, I'm going to give you my best answer. But I say this by way of concession, not by command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now, commentators and historians have really poured over this because Paul did describe himself as being a Hebrew of the Hebrew. He was a, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He said that he had studied at the feet of Gamaliel, a Pharisee, he calls himself. And blameless before the law. Well, in order for that to be true, to be in the Sanhedrin, you had to be 30 and you had to be married. And so at some point, apparently, Paul was married, but he says nothing of his wife. We know nothing of his wife. This is just something that's never come up. We have no idea. But we know at this point in his life, he's single. And he says, I would that all men would remain even as I am. However, each man... This is very much like what Jesus just said. Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. In other words, he's saying single is preferable, and he's going to talk about why in a moment. But then he says, but that's not universally true. For some people, married is better. Some people have this gift. Some people have a different gift. But I say to the unmarried, verse 8, and to the widows... That it's good for them if they remain even as I am, single. But if they do not have self-control, there's that issue again. If they're not able to keep themselves sexually pure, 
to remain sexually inactive as a single person, if they can't live in that manner, well then let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. But to the married I give instruction. I love that Paul then says, not I, but the Lord. Okay, so a moment ago he said, let me give you my opinion. My opinion is it's better to remain like I am. But now let me give you another statement, and this one is not me talking, but the Lord. That the wife should not leave her husband. Where did he get that? From what we just read. Jesus just said what the standard was. One man, one woman, for life, no divorce. So, a woman should not leave her husband, but, verse 11, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. That's the same topic that Jesus already addressed. You can't send her away for any reason. Don't send your wife away. So, that's to the unmarried. Let them remain unmarried. But to the rest... I say this, and not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, then let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his, the implication is through his believing wife, And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean. But now they are holy, separated. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, okay, let's talk about sociologically what's going on at the moment. As Paul is writing, the first century church, especially the first century Jewish church and the church at Corinth, is a combination of both Jewish and Gentile believers. There's a very large Jewish congregation and population in Corinth. And if you have expressed faith in Christ, not only are you being persecuted by the Jews, but Roman persecution is growing in the area. So to publicly say that you were a Christian was tantamount to a death sentence. And so you're going to see perhaps You know, your family, your wife, your husband, your children, you're going to see them persecuted, tortured, burned, culminating in some of the things that happened in Rome under Nero or the feeding of Christians to lions or burning them at the stake to light his garden. Christian persecution became horrific, and it was, according to best history and tradition, that it was under Nero's persecution that Paul himself was ultimately beheaded. So persecution against the church is big time. Now, you've got two unbelievers. Let's say two unbelieving Gentiles. You've got two unbelievers. One of them professes faith in Christ. What does that do to the family dynamic? Can you see why the unbeliever might leave? Say, I have nothing to do with this. I don't want to be fed to lions. I don't, that's her. She's doing that. That ain't me. Okay, let's say you have two Jewish law-keeping believers who have a business that is all tied up in the temple. You're all tied up in the Jewish community, and then one of you professes faith in Christ. Well, not only are you going to be thrown out of the temple, but your business is going to be destroyed, and you're going to be persecuted, and 
So what do you do if you're the still believing in the law mate? You're, you're the husband, you're still following Moses, and your wife professes Christ, and now your entire family dynamic has been upended, and you're being persecuted, and your business is being destroyed. Can you see why the husband would go, I'm out. I'm not in this. I'm out. Well, Paul recognizes that this is happening to people. So then, what are you going to say to the one that was left, who was left because of Christ? Because of their faith in Christ, they've now been abandoned. What are you going to say to them? Are you going to say to them, hey, except for the cause of adultery, sorry, Jesus said. First off, that's not going to work for the unbeliever because he doesn't care what Jesus said. And you're certainly not going to say that to the one that was left. Instead, what Paul says is words of comfort to the one that was left because he recognizes that this is just part of the persecution. So here's what Paul says. Verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. What bond is he talking about there? The marriage bond. It's the only bond that fits the context. The brother or the sister is not under the marriage bond in that instance. Now, if somebody is not under the marriage bond, here's where it becomes controversial. If someone is no longer under the bond of marriage because they've been abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, are they free to marry again? Devontae's nodding his head. Are they free to marry again? I think so, because the bond of marriage. He said, you're not under that bond anymore. And if you've been abandoned and you're not under that bond of marriage, I think you're free to marry again. They would be free if one of the marriage partners had died. They'd be free if one of the marriage partners had died, sure. So the bond has been broken. What about if one of the mates commits adultery? Okay, that broke the bond of marriage. Is the one who was left behind free to marry again? I kind of think so. But I also know that Paul kept saying, but it's better to stay single. We'll get into that in just a moment. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. Here's the general principle. The very last statement. For we are called to peace. God has called us to peace. Far too often, with all the damage that divorce has done to marriage in our society, with all the damage that divorce has done to churches, to Christian professions, with all the damage that divorce has done, the church is not called to pounce and make it worse. Paul says we're called to peace. In the end, we're called to empathy. In the end, we're called to recognize that these are people who are hurting and damaged and struggling. And you'll notice that in all this where Paul said, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. Notice he didn't even mention adultery. Didn't even bring it up. And because, kind of like that hardness of your heart thing, because God understands the human condition, and because God understands that these things happen and that unbelievers were likely to leave believers, he says, in the end, 
we're called to peace. And that becomes the driving principle where the question of divorce is in the New Covenant. Okay, so let's compare and contrast for a moment. Jesus mentioned adultery and said only for the cause of adultery did God allow a marriage to be broken up. A divorce could only happen according to Jesus' rules, not according to the Moses' rules, but according to the Jesus' rules, only adultery could abrogate a marriage because it does break the marriage bond. Paul said if the unbeliever leaves and didn't even mention adultery. And so I say, I think, the same way that Paul said, this is me, not the Lord. This is Jim, not the Lord. Although we're called to peace, is from the Lord. But I think the church has a long history of beating sheep and doing damage to hurting people. Uh, I think we would be better served to help people who have been damaged and who are hurting, who are in pain, who are struggling with divorce. Divorce is never a good option. I am not pro-divorce, and I'm not advocating divorce. And I'm divorced. But I'm never advocating it because I can tell you first person, it's horrific. But God has also been good to me and granted me the ability for the last 12 years now to live as a single celibate male. And I've been able to devote my life to this church and to the children. And that's a gift from God because that's not the way I am. That's not the way I've ever been, but it is how I am now. God has gifted me with that. And having gone through it now, first person, and knowing what it's like, I am nothing but empathetic to people who are going through it because we are ultimately called to peace, not to beating on each other. Does that make sense? Okay. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how will you know, O wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? I think that goes to both sides of the equation. If they want to stay, let them stay. Because maybe your testimony will lead to their salvation. So let them stay. But if they go, you don't know if you could have saved them. And so if they go, they go. If they stay, let them stay. Only, look at this, only as the Lord has assigned each one, as God has called each one in this manner, let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. In other words, if God has gifted you to be married, then be married. If God has gifted you to be single, then be single. However God has crafted you, however he has assigned you, that's the way that you should walk. There's so much more that I want to get to here. Verse 24, brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. This again is part of Paul believing Christ is going to come back so soon that whatever condition you were in when you were saved, just stay like that. Verse 25, now concerning virgins, this is for men who have daughters who are virgins that they're going to want to marry off at some point. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I have an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that it is good in the view of this present distress, there it is, 
this present persecution, the condition of the church, we're under distress from every side. And given this present distress, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she is not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. That is funny. <laughs> There's no way around it. Paul get, now, this again, I think, is because Paul is speaking firsthand. He's been married in 30s and Hedron, all that. And he just knows that there's a whole dynamic to marriage that in many ways gets in the way of service to the Lord. And so he says, I'm just trying to spare you some trouble. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. See, there's that expectation. The time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. His expectation was that Christ is coming back at any time. The tribulation is about to begin. Just whatever condition you were in when you were converted, when God called you, just stay there and wait for the Lord is the expectation. But I want you to be free from concerns, says verse 32. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how we may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how we may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is seemly or what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she should be of full age, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, well then he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only, Paul adds, given the circumstances, only in the Lord. If you're going to marry again after all that, marry a believer. But in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. So there's the Pauline teaching on divorce and marriage. And notice what the primary theme is. He keeps saying, you know, if you're married, that's good. If you're not married, that's good. And stay that way. We're called to peace. That's the ultimate Pauline concept is 
However God has gifted you, whatever God has given you the ability to do, well, then do that. I'm not against marriage in any way. I'm very pro-marriage. I have actually married a few of the people in the room. I don't mean I am married to them. I, I'm a polygamist, too. I'm very pro-marriage. But I'm also very pro-singleness. Because, as Paul said, and it is certainly proven true in my life, singleness allows for a more single-minded dedication to the things of God. And given my job and position, that works well for me. But it may not work that well for Thaddeus. That may not be the case for Devante. And so I say, get married. But know going in that there's a lot of responsibility that goes with it. Meanwhile, if you're divorced or divorced and remarried, or divorced and unmarried, if you've gone through the heartache of all that, worst case scenario, you were wrong for doing it, Jesus is a complete savior, run to him. If you're divorced and you're going through the pain of divorce, I call on the church to be empathetic. And don't beat people for what oftentimes they had no control over. Now, finally, Paul is going to develop a theology. Notice this phrase, a wife is bound to her husband as long as the husband lives. But if her husband's dead, she is free to marry whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So, as Tom said earlier, the only real legitimate, biblically consistent end to a marriage is till death do we part which is the way most vows are said. Till death do we part. And so Paul says this is a reality that a woman or a man whose mate is dead is then free. They can marry again because they're no longer bound to their husband or wife. Turn to Romans 7 for a moment because Paul is going to say that exact thing and then create a theology from it that is just wonderful. Romans 7, starting at verse 1. At Rome, very much like at Corinth, these great big major cities, you would have a large Jewish population and you would have a large Gentile population. As you're reading through the book of Romans, you will notice how often Paul says, and now I'm speaking to the Gentiles. And then he would turn and say, and now I'm speaking to the Jews. Because there were two primary congregations in Rome that were the church, but the Jews were meeting with the Jews and the Gentiles were meeting with the Gentiles. And so Paul's letter was written to both groups and he would go back and forth. In the beginning of verse 7, he says, And do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Okay, I'm talking to the Jewish congregation right now. I'm speaking to those who know the law. Don't you know that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? So he's saying to the Jews, you are responsible to keep the law your whole life. And the law can't help you, and the law can't redeem you. All the law can do is judge you. He's been saying that all the way through this book. In fact, the first three chapters of this book, Paul does the very same thing that Jesus did at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did the whole, you've heard it said, but I say, so that he could level the playing field and make everybody guilty Paul starts the book of Romans by saying, Gentiles are guilty. And then the Jews go, yeah, get those Gentiles. He says, and the Jews are guilty. And by chapter 3, he's saying, everybody's guilty. 
And he's doing it on purpose. He's doing the same thing he learned from the way Jesus taught, which is level the playing field, make sure everybody knows that nobody is good in God's eyes. You need a savior. So he starts with, how can a man be justified before God? Well, you can't do it through the law. So he says, I'm talking to you who are under the law. Don't you know that the law has jurisdiction over a person for as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Okay, that's all a fact. We know that. We agree with it now. Marriage, one man, one woman, for life until one or the other dies. Then the other one is free. Now look what he does with that reality. So then if, says verse 3, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, then she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined with another man. In other words, he's saying the same thing Jesus said, the same adultery rule. If two people are married and then they divorce, and then the woman goes and marries another man. Well, then Jesus already said, that's adultery. He says, but it's different if the husband dies. If the husband dies, well, then she's free to go remarry, and she's not an adulteress. But he's still not talking about divorce and remarriage. It's not really the topic. He says all that to get you ready for verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Great. What he's saying is, you who are in Christ, you Jews that are under the law, because you are in Christ, you've died to the law. And remember, you were bound to the law your whole life. But now that you have died to the law through Christ, you're free to marry somebody else. Come be the bride of Christ. See what he's doing? It's brilliant. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined or married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, that means while we were still following the law, thinking that we could justify ourselves on the basis of law-keeping, while the Jews were in that state of law-keeping in the flesh, the sinful passions that were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Because again, the law can't help you, the law can't save you. All the law can do is kill you. And all you can do is bear fruit for death as long as you think that through your flesh you can justify yourself. But, verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter of the law. New covenant. We're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. And under the new covenant, it's a completely different relationship. It's not a relationship based in flesh. It's not a relationship based in performance. It's a relationship based in the finished work of Christ and faith in him. Now, of course, you know the rest of that chapter is Paul going on and saying that he has a conflict in himself because what he 
does want to do, he doesn't do. And what he doesn't want to do, that's exactly the thing that he does. Until he reaches verse 24 and says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He sees his own physical body, sinful as it is, as a body of death. All his flesh can do is kill him and condemn him. Woe is me, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's the answer. That's always the answer. That's always the solution. Now, the reason I wanted to get to there was because we've been talking about divorce all morning. And there are divorced people in the room, including myself. And the end of the conversation about divorce from a biblical standpoint is there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. The church has a tendency, sadly, to stray into legalism so much that they will condemn people who have been divorced. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. He is the answer. He is the solution. He is not an excuse. Paul argues about that and says, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? God forbid. But the reality is there's not a person in this room, there's not a person listening to me on the Internet, there's not a person on this planet who isn't guilty, guilty, guilty. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul said it at the beginning of the book of Romans. The whole Bible says it repeatedly. Guilty, you're just guilty. And you're going to stand before God one of two ways. You're either going to pay for your own sin and be judged, or you're going to be eternally forgiven because you're in Christ and Christ is in you. And if that's your state, then there is now, therefore, no condemnation. But wait, I've done terrible things. There's no condemnation. I got divorced and not even for the cause of adultery. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. I've done horrific things. I've hated my brother in my heart. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. I've lied. I've stealed. Stealed. I've stolen. I've used bad grammar. I've... I've done terrible things. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. This is why I tell people, run to Christ, run to Christ, run to Christ. The answer to your problem. Okay, I've stolen. Okay, what's the solution? Jesus, I've stolen. Yeah, you don't run back and put it back and think that fixed it. If you steal a pack of gum and then your, your conscience overtakes you and you go put the gum back, you're still guilty before the law as a robber and a thief. The fact that you put it back changed nothing. You still did it because that's what was in your heart because you are a robber. Okay, I've lied. I went back later and I told them, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to lie. I repented. You still lied because you're a liar. Okay, I was divorced and I remarried. And it wasn't for cause of an adultery. Well, you're guilty. But you can't fix that by undoing your marriage and going back to the first one. You can't fix it. 
There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That's always the answer. And it's the only answer, and it's the only solution. And if you're looking for some other solution that has to do with your flesh, you fixing these things in your flesh, you get nothing but condemnation. That's what Paul said. But there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. You got it? No, I mean, do you got it? Yes, sir. Yes. No, I mean, do you really got it? Yes. Down deep, do you understand it? Because we're legalists at heart, and at some point before this day is over, you're going to think that you can fix something about yourself in your flesh. It all needs to be spiritual. The answer is always the same. You need a real redeemer. You need a real savior. You need a complete savior, and he's the only answer. Because the answer isn't in you. Right? Right, right. Am I talking to myself up here? No. Okay. Was that helpful? Yes, sir. Did we learn something today? Yes, sir. Did I maybe take some weight off some of your shoulders today? Yeah. I hope so. Because the answer is Christ. All right? Any questions? No? That's a real rarity. All right, then. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.